Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Jeremy Shapiro, Research Director at the European Council on Foreign Relations. He was previously with the Brookings Institution and before that, President Obama's State Department's policy planning staff. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I asked you on to talk about U.S.-European relations since the start of the Ukraine war, but there's also some important context that maybe you can walk us through first. I think it's fair to say that many European leaders were shocked by President Trump's antagonism towards Europe and, and NATO, and I gather there was some recognition in European capitals that U.S. politics may not allow for the kind of dominant role that the United States has played in Europe since World War II. And then, of course, Biden was elected with his traditionalist foreign policy and seemed to try to reassure Europe of the steadiness of America's commitment. And then, of course, the Ukraine war happened, which deepened European sense of threat and their hopes for U.S. leadership simultaneously, it seems. Can you just talk a bit about that whirlwind of statecraft there and explain how European leaders view the United States in general as a partner right now? Yeah, it's complicated because there's uh, quite a bit of division across across Europe on this question. European leaders were by and large pretty horrified by Trump and pretty frightened that he um, presaged a, a sort of American withdrawal or, or a different American relationship, which was much more with Europe that was much more transactional and was kind of almost mercenary, you know, um, basically he, the kind of thing he used to say all the time that, you know, we don't, we, you have to pay for our defense was the kind of thing that made uh, Europeans who are not used to paying for their defense a little bit uh, noivous. Um, but uh, so Biden came in and Biden was in a certain level, the, the president, the U S president of, of European dreams and, Biden administration officials were coming over here to Europe and and saying constantly, you know, we're back. Uh, and what was interesting about this was that during the Trump administration, the the threats that Trump was making that the was were were spurring a bit of European rethinking of the American alliance, but maybe more importantly, of the concept of what they, what came to be called European autonomy or European sovereignty. The idea that Europe should be able to stand up and defend itself because maybe America wouldn't always do it. And it was true at that moment, and it, and still is, that, that Europeans always preferred the United States to do it. Um, they've been very happy with the deal that they've had for the last 70 or 80 years. And and by and large, with, with the I guess maybe with the exception of the French, they don't really want to undo that deal. But there was beginning to be a, recommend, a, re, a recognition in the Trump administration that maybe that deal wouldn't always be on offer and they would have to think come up with an alternative big splits on this question. And in the East, they certainly hadn't reached that conclusion. But in places like Germany, which is kind of a key swing state, they were beginning to reach that conclusion. Biden comes in and his reassurance is sort of enough to to stop them from going anywhere on that. The Ukraine war really reinforces that message because the Biden administration, true to its promises, came in and really took the lead on the Western response uh, to the Ukraine war and was very instrumental in assuring Western unity and getting the Europeans together. They played a very traditional Cold War style American role in the Ukrainian war. And it has really snuffed out to a certain degree this European impulse toward 
autonomy and toward being able to defend themselves. Uh, the Easterners are now sort of exultant in the notion that they were always right, that Europe couldn't defend itself. They were always right that they needed the Americans and that they were always right that the Americans would be there. Um, and that is the story, to be fair to them, of, of 2022. But I think if you listen to American officials, what they really seem to be saying is we can't do this forever. Actually, we can barely do it uh, now. Uh, and that we really have to be getting on to China, and that uh, this isn't going. This isn't a sustainable policy. And then you have waiting in the in the wings, the next Republican administration, maybe even another Trump administration, which is really not going to take this track toward Europe. And I think the, the Europeans seem to understand this. If you talk to them, they all say they're worried about a new Trump administration. They're worried about a U.S. shift to China. They understand that the U.S. can't defend them forever uh, or even much longer, but uh, they're not really doing anything about it. And I think that the Ukraine war has really uh, hurt any movement, even the slight movement that they had toward doing something about it. You mentioned uh, the internal divisions in, in Europe, um, and maybe I'll zero in on just a couple of those, Germany and France. But uh, with respect to Germany, you've written that Germany is probably the most internally divided member state on this issue, that it has strong impulses both to encourage U.S. leadership and to assert a more independent European role. Can you just talk about Germany and the role it plays in, in uh, that debate? Yeah, it's super intriguing. I think Germany is kind of the swing state um, in this debate. It's, uh, it's the Pennsylvania of European autonomy, I guess. Um, and it, uh, how can we put this? It, it, um, it is the biggest, it's the biggest country in Europe. It's potentially the most powerful country. It has the largest economy. Uh, it vastly, um, punches below its weight in terms of military matters and even really international diplomacy. And it often takes a back seat uh, to the French. And one of the reasons for this has always been that the, that um, they feel uncomfortable taking uh, a front row seat in international politics. And they prefer, by and large, or have preferred for the last 80 years to let the Americans do the heavy lifting and to sort of support them from behind. And this is a comfortable position for German politics. Um, and it's you can really see it in the Ukraine war where uh, when you talk to American officials about Germany, uh, they're they're not upset with the German reaction, but they're not impressed by it either. They sort of think, well, Germany is neither the problem or the solution. They do what we tell them to, but more or less only the minimum. They don't get in the way, but they don't really offer much, uh, many sort of innovative solutions. They don't take any leads, um, which is, you know, a little bit disappointing for the biggest country <laughs> in Europe. Uh, and I think it reflects the fact that um, that they are they are by and large comfortable with this deal. But I think unlike some of the Eastern states, they have they were really struck by uh, the antagonism that came from Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump had a special antagonism uh, for Germany. It, it one one of the uh, as one of the uh, one of my Republican interlocutors put it to me, Trump didn't have a Europe problem. He had a Germany problem. Um, he believed that Germany was par excellence an example of uh, an ally that basically um, uh, accepted American protection, didn't pay for it, and then took advantage of America uh, in on the international trading system. And Germany does have a big export surplus with 
the United States. Um, and so he was bound and determined to do something about uh, Germany. He sent his most obnoxious ambassador to Germany, which is saying something, uh, and who was incredibly unpopular here and uh, really did, I'm in Berlin right now, um, and really did sort of set German uh, Germany on edge. And so there was a lot of, in that, in that period, there was a lot of sort of rethinking of the U.S. alliance, uh, Angela Merkel said, you know, f famously at a beer hall one time, well, maybe we, maybe they're not that reliable. Maybe we need to do something about this. And they were taking some steps in that direction. But as I said, the, the sort of one-two punch of a more compliant Biden administration and uh, the Ukraine war in which the U.S. took the lead has really taken the wind out of a lot of those sails, even as they recognize that um, the both the sort of China priorities of the United States and even more particularly the possibility of another Trump or Trump-like administration makes them understand that this isn't really sustainable. Marie Le Pen's National Rally Party recently won uh, more parliamentary seats in, in France, and we've seen other far-right gains in Europe. Uh, is there anything you want to say about the roots of those politics and what it might mean for the relationship with the United States? Yeah, well, it depends on which United States administration you're talking about. I mean, um, I think that the roots of those things are pretty familiar to uh, people who are familiar with the rise of the populist phenomenon and and uh, Donald Trump in the United States. The rhetoric is is very similar. It's all about... Um, sort of nativist working class grievances against immigrants, the international trading system, and their own elites. It's harking back to um, previous greatness and saying that it's been uh, destroyed by uh, by stupid policies and treasonous leaders. Um, and so it's very recognizable. I think it's a phenomenon, frankly, which has echoes in almost every country in the West to varying degrees and in varying forms. Of course, each one has its own particularities. Uh, uh, and so the uh, Marie Le Pen is not the same as Donald Trump. But I think you can sort of say that it comes from the same, same kind of, same type of social discontents. So what does that mean for U.S.-European relations? Well, in the first instance, not that much right now because you know the they haven't taken power in France and in fact um except in really Hungary and arguably Poland um they haven't taken power anywhere in uh in Europe um but there are significant political force in most european countries uh and you could imagine that growing in places like well Italy for example um could well have a uh, a populist government in a, in several months, um, but other countries like Bulgaria um, could could go in the same direction. Um, so uh, that could prove a challenge um, for a Biden administration. But of course, what's one of the things that's been interesting? One of thing, one of the interesting things that's been happening over the last few years is that there's been sort of increasing links between these types of uh, nationalist parties in the United States and in Europe. This has been a particular project of Steve Bannon. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure how far it's gotten. Uh, there is a certain sort of oxymoronic quality to, to, to creating a international of nationalist parties. Um, but 
I do think that you saw that the Trump administration was much more comfortable in its relations with Hungary and Poland um, than it was with the traditional Western European allies. And the Biden administration is exactly the opposite. So it wouldn't be difficult to imagine that if there was a, a sort of uh, a populist government in Italy, for example, uh, next year, that if that it would have a lot of trouble with the Biden administration, just as Hungary does now. Um, but uh, it would do very well with it with a um, Trump administration or some Trump-like administration that might come. And so what we're seeing, I think, is not exactly a transatlantic divide. It's it's domestic divides in, in the United States and within Europe that fall along similar lines and that will affect the alignments depending on who's in power in each country. There are also differences among European leaders themselves on Ukraine regarding just how much support to give Ukraine and the risks of pushing for an outright victory versus a less damaging compromise. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so my organization, the European Council on Foreign Relations, did a paper on this um, that came out last week, and we did some public opinion polling uh, across Europe in, in 10 of the major EU member states. And what we found is that uh, there are what we call the peace, the peace camps in every country, and these are countries that these are people that um, prefer to seek a negotiated end to the conflict, uh, one that preserves, by and large, Western goals, but is but involves some probably would involve some compromises with Russia, and a justice camp, which really seeks to punish Russia for its illegal and and uh, uh, and its war crimes, its legal activities, and its war crimes in in Ukraine. Um, and those are obviously very different notions of of what's going on, what what the goal is in the war. And I think it is reflected in European politics. There are, by and large in the West, I think there's some exceptions, uh, leaders like uh, Draghi in Italy, Macron in France, and arguably Schultz in, in Germany, are thinking that you know they they it's that it's certainly that it's important to arm ukraine that they have to have that they have to have a a position of strength on the battlefield but that ultimately they want to bring this to a negotiated solution because uh, if the war lasts very long european politics will become increasingly difficult uh europe europe's economies will suffer uh and they will not be able to sustain the war effort uh, for too long, and I think you know those those leaders are seeing that in their populations, and our our polling agrees with them. But if you look at particularly Poland and the Baltic states, you see a very very different mindset. Their mindset is essentially this is an opportunity to basically destroy the Russian regime. I mean, I think they wouldn't say that specifically. They usually say something along the formulation that Austin used that we have to sort of weaken Russia to the point where it isn't a threat to its neighbors. But that's a level of calibration that I don't really think is possible. And I don't really think it's what they're after. They need, they fundamentally believe that Vladimir Putin's regime is inherently aggressive um, and, you know, will never stop until it's destroyed and that this is the best opportunity they're likely to have to destroy it. And so a settlement would be, any kind of settlement at any point would be um, a disaster for that. I wonder what you have to say about 
the uh, internal battle in the United States over this. There's uh, politically that's happening, but also within Biden's own administration, it seems there's there's a tussle um, over just how hard the rhetoric should be and what our own war objectives should be. Uh, it was recently reported that Biden had to tell his Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State to kind of tone it down. Um, what do you think is prudent here from the United States' perspective? Should this be about merely aiding Ukraine's defense, or is it, a, uh, is it about adopting Ukrainian war objectives and weakening Russia? Well, those are two very distinct questions, because <laughs> the first one is sort of, um, you know, what is the what are the U.S. politics, and the second is what do, what do I think, and I don't think the same thing as U.S. politics. Um, the I I guess I I maybe slightly disagree with the premise of your question. I'm not sure that there is a big debate on this within the U.S. right now. I think that um, uh, maybe you'd be better placed to know than I would, but I haven't. It doesn't seem to me like. Uh, you know the U.S. has, as as it often does during these wars, it's sort of whipped up the, whipped up the the machine, and it's really demonized Vladimir Putin and Russia. You know, mostly fairly, but even a little unfairly. Um, and people are pretty gung ho uh, for the war. You certainly see that in Congress. Uh, you know, there is a little bit of resistance, but not much. Um, I think that you're right, however, that within the Biden administration. The, the positions are a bit more nuanced because I think those are the people who are trying to understand the consequences of uh, the, the, the kinds of escalation that are very possible, almost even likely, um, in Ukraine. And they're trying to, frankly, balance against some of the other people in their own administration who are more hawkish and also the sort of generally hawkish mood in the Congress and in the country. And they're sort of trying to look forward into the future and say, well, you know, actually, if we if we sort of go uh, too hard and too heavy and too threatening to the Russians, we could get ourselves into a situation where, for reasons we don't even understand, we're fighting a war with Russia over Ukraine, which is not, after all, an essential national security interest of the United States. And of course, fighting a war with Russia uh, brings with it the possibility of uh, nuclear exchanges and, you know, the end of the world. So that's, you know, potentially a serious thing. Uh, and uh, I guess, you know, I'm uh, I'm on the side, my, my personal view is that, uh, is that that is a problem. I mean, that we have, for a very long time, we've had this, we've had, the United States has been fighting wars abroad, which, you know, they, they have some, they create some political divisions at home and there's divides and opinion, you know, should we go hard? Should we go, should we go soft? Should we be fighting it? Should we not? The soldiers, uh, should we be putting soldiers risk at lives? These are, you know, I wouldn't say that these, those were unimportant questions. They were certainly important and they were certainly tough debates, but there was a sort of otherworldly quality about it in the sense that these wars never touched the United States. They touched a few soldiers that were a very small portion of the population. They cost, uh, you know, a lot of money, but we had a ton of money. We could definitely afford it. And nobody in the sort of mass of the population was really ever affected by these wars. Uh, and they were almost a luxury. They were like a debating point. 
and and we developed a really strange quality about talking about war as if it was like a game as if as if it was something that could never touch us because of that uh we failed to understand that with this war that we're in right now can can definitely touch us uh and not just through its nuclear uh the the nuclear escalation oh that's the most frightening one but but you know we can see what it's doing to our economy a war with russia is a completely different concept than a war with iraq or afghanistan or libya or serbia i mean this is uh this is something which deeply affects the international system which deeply affects the international economy and which has a potential for an escalation which is beyond our imagining frankly and i don't think that uh, i think that there are people in the biden administration who understand that but i don't think that they've been able to carry that message to the public to the congress and so we're still fighting the russia war as if it was the iraq war and i think that that's incredibly dangerous i'm going to come back to some of that in, in a minute but um i wonder if you have anything to say about the talk since the ukraine war of finland and sweden possibly joining nato can you discuss those issues yeah, I, I have something to say, but mostly that I don't really care. Um, and I think that this is super important. Uh, it's really irrelevant whether Sweden or Finland joins NATO. And I don't understand why people are giving it all the attention. I, I, I don't even care enough to be opposed to it. Um, I think Sweden and Finland are uh, you know, incredibly good allies. They already are. Frankly, they are already more integrated with NATO than... Um, than mo than a lot of nato members um they uh i don't they they have frankly implicit security guarantees from the united states in part through their membership in the eu uh they're not really at risk in my view uh from russia certainly in the near term um and you know if they want to join nato i don't exactly object but i don't really think it's an urgent issue and i think it and by the way, it's not even going to, on the negative side, it's not going to upset the Russians any more than they're already upset because they already believe that um, it just verifies their view that NATO is out to get them. So maybe it will raise their sort of probability that NATO is out to get them from, you know, 99.1 to 99.2%. Um, but that's not really going to change fundamentally their view of who Sweden and Finland are or what NATO is. So it has very few positive or negative effects, I think. Uh, admitting them. But what intrigues me is why so many people in the U.S. establishment are so uh, fixated on uh, Swedish and Finnish uh, membership. And it's it feels like to them it is the completion of this or, or moving toward completion of this sort of project of NATO expansion, which, uh, which seems to have acquired a logic of its own. It's no longer about finding a NATO alliance which has the borders that they can defend and has the right allies in it. It is really just about surrounding Russia um, and making sure that um, uh, that all of the countries of Europe are in our sphere and not in Russia's sphere. And you know, I mean, I, I'm I'm quite happy to have uh, Sweden and Finland in NATO and in the Western sphere, but. I wonder the degree when I look at how 
enthused people are about this kind of meaningless issue, I sometimes it makes me think that maybe the Russians have a point. Maybe NATO expansion is something that uh, that really has been aimed at them the whole time. You've also argued that U.S. foreign policy has a prioritization problem, um, and that we are indebted to Europe based on uh, decades-old commitments, but that uh, our sights ought to be turned further east towards China and the kind of um, tug and pull that that involves in the in the grand strategy debate. Um, how do you? What would be a sensible posture for the United States and Europe to be able to cooperate on China? What do the national interests in these countries demand? Yeah, um, I guess I do think that that uh, the U.S. has a prioritization problem. Uh, what's interesting about that, I think, is that um, the Trump administration agreed with me, and the Biden administration seems to agree with me. Actually, it's kind of a consensus uh, across the parties one which I agree with, um, that um, that the United States needs to focus on China. Uh, and the reasons are pretty clear, I mean, uh, and I think quite compelling. I mean, China is, is the type of peer competitor that we haven't faced since, you know, Nazi Germany um, in terms of its power and its potential uh, and its sort of ideological commitment to overthrow uh, the, the, the U.S.-led world order. Um, and so I th and it's you know it, it's it's a very very difficult problem. Um, uh, it's going to have an economy bigger than the United States quite soon. Its um, its military is growing leaps and bounds. It is it is I wouldn't say it's the U.S.'s technological peer, but it's gaining on it rapidly and it's ahead in some specific areas. Um, and they have a you know they have a sort of ideology which is quite abhorrent to U.S. values, and we can see that in places like Xinjiang and Hong Kong. So this is something that um, that worries me quite a bit, that, and seems to worry policymakers of both parties quite a bit. There's a broad consensus on it. So having said all of that, the question is, why is it that we are fighting a war against Russia? Why is it that the last few wars we've fought and why have we spent so much money and political effort and political capital and and wasted so many soldiers' lives in in the Middle East in the last uh, ten years? And I think that this reflects the great difficulty that presidents have in escaping these commitments and in sort of dealing with the particular interests in U.S. domestic politics, which are able to sort of say, "Well, no, we can't. You know, we we have to we have to maintain our commitment to Europe." And of course. Uh, we have to keep fighting these wars in the Middle East. And of course, we have, we're the United States of America, so we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, so we can do it all. But the truth is that when you look at a problem like China, it's very clear that we can't do it all. Um, it, China is difficult enough in itself, and it requires some rigid prioritization. And rigid prioritization means not doing some things that it would be good to do. I mean, I think that the U.S. defense commitment to Europe is is useful. It's useful for the United States and it's useful for Europe, but it's not really sustainable given the commitments that the U.S. is acquiring and the needs that the U.S. has in Asia. So what does that mean for the U.S.-European relationship? Well, look, I think it means that fundamentally Europe is going to have to start providing for its own security within Europe and its neighborhood. It doesn't have to do that tomorrow. Uh, can't do that tomorrow because we're, we seem to be fighting a, a, a war with Russia over Ukraine. But 
Um, at some point, it's going to have to do that. It should be doable. They have the capacity to do that. Uh, and frankly, I think they would do it if they truly believed it's necessary. Um, but I think a lot of them are hoping it won't be and hoping that the things I just said about U.S. prioritization are not true. So we're probably going to have to demonstrate to them with incredibly, incredibly strong clarity. In terms of what they need to do do together on China, you know, I'm not so worried about that. I don't, it's, from my perspective, the Europeans are an important ally in dealing with China on the sort of geoeconomic front. And there needs to be some alignment on, you know, trade policies and on um, technology policies, intellectual property to deal with China. But it's not terribly important or useful that, you know, Germany be sending frigates into the Taiwan Strait. That's not really going to make a big difference in the in the U.S. military posture in, in, in the East. And it's not a good use of European resources, which frankly should be trying to deal with their problems at home. And that the in I think that the important allies for the U.S. when it comes to confronting China in a geostrategic sense are in the region there, Japan and South Korea and Australia and a few others. So um, I think that it's not important that the U.S. and Europe be tightly aligned on China. What's more important is that Europeans understand that the resources that the U.S. requires to deal with China means that they have to be taking up uh, the their own defense in Europe and even in their even in the neighborhood. So I want to ask you a question about uh, overcoming uh, the, that obstacle. There, um, in an essay for CNAS a few years ago, you wrote. Quote, it is an iron law of democratic politics that any vast spending program, no matter its origin or purpose, will spawn powerful interests that will forcefully support its continuation. And you point out that this is what has happened with U.S. foreign policy in many respects. So can you talk about what interests you're speaking about that seek to maintain that traditional post-war U.S. posture towards Europe? Yeah. Wow, that's a good sentence. I wrote that. Oh, good. Um, yes, I definitely agree with the thing that I wrote. Um, I, I think what I was referring to is to what is often colloquially called the blob. And I think uh, what this means is that uh, there's various ways in which existing policies spawn interest groups that support them. Sometimes it's through the sort of defense industrial complex type thing that Eisenhower was referring to, which is that... Um, is that people acquire a financial stake in the in the continuation of the policy. Um, but sometimes it's sort of more cultural. And I think when it comes to sort of foreign policy thinkers in in Washington, it's sort of both cultural and financial that their their entire careers, their entire mindset has been oriented around uh, a US leadership position in the world and particularly a US leadership position in Europe. Uh, and it's, I can tell you, having been, you know, however briefly a U.S. official, it's great as a U.S. official to go to Europe. Um, everybody pays attention to you. Everybody pay, shows deference to you. You get to sit at the front of every table. Um, it's really not that hard to get meetings. Uh, and you are the one that most people are interested in listening to. And I can, that, the psychic benefits of that are massive. Uh, and I think it's really true that uh, for the sort of foreign policy officials and I, uh, foreign policy thinkers, and I count myself among them that have been raised amongst this, the idea of 
relinquishing the U.S. power position in Europe will uh, is is quite difficult to contemplate, um, and they would really much rather um, uh, sort of persist in the fantasy that the U.S. can continue to run the world as it did in the 1990s and from the 1990s and 2000s, in which it was essentially able to be at the head of every table in every region. Um, and that I don't think I don't think that that's really an option anymore. But I do think that the foreign policy thinkers are going to be the basically the last ones to understand that. To be fair, quite a lot of the Asianists are making this point already. Um, but I think the Europeanists, the Middle East specialists, those people will come last. Elsewhere in that same piece, um, you wrote, and you spoke about this earlier a little bit, but you wrote that America is at once the country that needs a foreign policy the least and yet has it the most. Can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, if you just sort of take a sort of a historical look at the situation of the United States, what you see is a country that is very geographically removed from any problematic area uh, in the world that has uh, friendly neighbors uh, to the north and the south and even friendlier oceans to the east and the west uh, that has uh, what remains one of the most self-sufficient economies in the world. Um, we keep talking about how much we've in interdependence has increased, and that's true, but actually the United States, uh, relative to almost any other country you can name, is quite self-sufficient. Um, and uh, so, you know, I mean, I think that the, what what that means, frankly, is that the United States could persist quite well with, you know, not having a foreign policy toward any other country except Canada and Mexico, basically. Uh, but for historical reasons that I think we all probably understand very well, it's kind of the opposite of that. Um, the United States is the country in the world which has the most foreign policy. It has it has soldiers present in the last time I looked uh, over a hundred countries on Earth. Uh, it has uh, it has policies and positions and interests uh, in like every dispute that you could name all around the world in all sorts of places in the world that most Americans have never heard of. I mean, there was a situation at one point when uh, uh, during the Trump administration when four U.S. soldiers were killed in Niger. And, uh, you know, I'm a foreign policy specialist. I didn't know that the U.S. had soldiers in Niger. I don't think it was a secret. Um, uh, but it's just the fact that the U.S. is so present in so many countries, that kind of thing can happen at any moment. We are We are deeply involved in the business of practically every country on earth. Um, and quite a few of them really resent us for it. Quite a few of them are very happy about it. But um, regardless, uh, we are out there. And I think that this is a sort of a strange paradox because we, we, we arguably need it less than any other country. And we definitely have it more than any other country. Um, I think it's not that hard. As I said, it's not that hard historically to understand why it's true. But what it means is that the political foundations of U.S. foreign policy are quite weak. And this gets back to that sort of luxury argument that I was making. The country has been more or less happy to let the political elites have this expansive foreign policy because it hasn't negatively affected them, um, or at least they haven't perceived that it has. 
in any major way. And it's, you know, it, it appeals to patriotic pride and it's great to win a war every once in a while. It's been a while, but it's still great. Um, and so I think it, by and large, hasn't been that difficult to sustain politically, but I think it's becoming a lot harder. Uh, and I think we saw that in the Trump administration where people sort of started standing up and going, why are you fighting this war in Iraq where, when I'm, um, when I'm suffering at home, why are, why does it seem like our trade deals are structured to allow us to have continued leadership that we don't want and we're paying an economic price for it? Why is it that we have this immigration policy that doesn't seem to me to be in to the benefit of the American working class? Uh, actually, I think it is, but other people would say that. Um, and I think it's it's starting to cause in various parts of both the Democratic and even more the Republican Party to question uh, why we have the most expansive foreign policy in the world. And uh, I think, you know, we're, we're a very long way from isolationism, and I don't think we'll ever get there or ever should, um, uh, because obviously the United States needs engagement with the world and will have engagement with the world. Um, but the idea that we might scale back some of those commitments is, I think, something that the public is asking for and demanding. And when you combine that with the overall China challenge, which you know, I think should be sustainable in domestic politics, but only if we're sort of saying this is the challenge that really matters to us and we're prioritizing it and we're not just going to double the defense budget so that we can uh, do the China challenge and do everything else we've always been doing. I think if that's the effort, which sometimes it seems like it is, um, I don't. I think that the political foundations for that kind of thing in the United States are quite weak and will be vulnerable to populist challenges from Trump-like figures in the future, even from uh, figures who might come from the Democratic left uh, and even in the Democratic Party. So I just don't think that, that that policy has a political future. Jeremy Shapiro, thanks so much for talking with us today. Sure. Thank you. 